we have inherited a big house, a great world house in which we have to live together, black men and white men, Easterners and Westerners, Gentiles and Jews, Catholics and Protestants, Muslims and Hindus, a family unduly separated in ideas, culture, and interests, who, because we can never again live without each other, must learn somehow in this one big world house to live with each other. Welcome to The World House, a podcast inspired by Martin Luther King Jr. and his vision of a just and peaceful world. I'm Dr. Claiborne Carson, director of the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute here at Stanford. And I'm Dr. Mira Foster, director of the Liberation Curriculum, our educational program here at the King Institute. We ended our last episode with one of the major achievements of the civil rights movement, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And almost right away, King has to return to the valley to one of those low points in his activism. And what I'm thinking about is the, the outburst of racial violence in Watts in Los Angeles in the August of 1965. Clay, let's start by looking at what triggered this conflict and more importantly, what caused it? Well, the trigger was uh, the arrest of a black man, um, which might be familiar to people right now in terms of the Black Lives Matter. A, a single arrest by a, a Los Angeles policeman sparked this violence. Um, the, the man was arrested for drunk driving. Um, there was something about the police behavior that caused a crowd to gather, including his mother. And this quickly escalated into an angry outburst against police brutality. And then it became more broadly a, an outburst against economic poverty in the black community, lack of opportunities. So this uh, you know, single arrest uh, triggers a, a rebellion in the community, what we call the Watts Rebellion, as the press called it, the Watts Riot. And uh, at that time, I was there in uh, South Central Los Angeles. I was working with a group called the Nonviolent Action Committee. I had just arrived the previous year in Los Angeles. And I, I uh, sensed this anger and frustration and um, police behavior was at the, at the root of it. But I think it was also just a more generalized uh, discontent in the black community over the lack of opportunity. And um, I knew that um, police brutality uh, was one of the causes of this anger because I had witnessed it also in, in Watts. I'd seen, uh, for example, one of the things that I thought I'd never seen in my life, uh, a block of people being arrested. Uh, the police blocked off the ends of, uh, of a block and had every black man stand and with their hands on the wall uh, while they were searched for weapons or drugs or whatever. And uh, I just saw this as a violation of their rights and that uh, the police could get away with it. Uh, something that they would never do in a, in a block with most of the people being white. Uh, so I wasn't that surprised that uh, the police um, behavior triggered this conflict. 
it was something that um, happened right near the office of the Nonviolent Action Committee, uh, which had been formed, by the way, as a breakaway from the Congress of Racial Equality by three black men who felt that a greater militancy was necessary, even though, as you could see from the name, they were still committed to nonviolent activism, but in a more militant sense. You know, our model was the, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, people our own age. And uh, when they used nonviolence, they, they did it in the sense of jail, no bail. And that was our philosophy. The targets were not uh, segregated lunch counters, but rather um, banks such as the Bank of America and uh, um, grocery stores that refused to hire um, black clerks. So from the beginning, NVAC was focused on these economic issues. And our headquarters was on Central Avenue in South Central Los Angeles, which, by the way, was where uh, the violence spread. Uh, it was called uh, uh, the Watts Riot or Rebellion, um, but Watts is only a small part of that South Central area. So I, I recall being there on a, on a Friday evening, a couple of days after the arrests of, of Marquette Fry. And by that time, crowds had been on gathering outside our office. Um, we could see that something was going to happen that evening. And what happened is that many of the stores were looted, uh, many of the buildings were set on fire, and that particular part of Central Avenue became known as uh, Charcoal Alley uh, because so many of the buildings were, were set on fire. And I, I remember just being um, totally amazed to see an entire area of the city on fire. And it also caused us to think about what we were doing. What was the relevance of this uh, violence to our effort to practice militant nonviolence? Was it militant enough? Uh, so even as we were watching it, uh, we could see that this was a questioning of the relevance of our own work. So I think that this was something that um, fueled my activism at the time. After, after this, uh, even before this, I had begun to write articles for the LA Free Press, become involved in, in sit-ins, including one that uh, was focused on a, on a grocery store. And we went on a Friday evening and just at the time when the maximum number of people were, were shopping. And we, we would let people out, um, but we sat in the door and wouldn't let people in. And of course, this brought the police and, and uh, that was the idea of using civil disobedience uh, to gain concessions from employers. So uh, on that occasion, by the way, uh, we uh, shut down the store for a few hours. And when the police arrived, they started to, to threaten us with arrest and you know, finally, I guess the person who was in charge of our group, one of the leaders of, of NVAC said, oh, look, we've accomplished what we want. Let's, let's get out of here. And uh, so we left without actually getting arrested that evening. And this was also a time of, of activism in other areas because uh, during the Selma to Montgomery March, I remember uh, trying to set, shut down the federal building in Los Angeles uh, to protest against the federal action on behalf of voting rights in the, in the Deep South. 
So all of this was uh, part of my own introduction to the urban civil rights uh, struggle and uh, violence of August of 1964 coming so soon after the passage of the Voting Rights Act uh, was something that, that, as I said, caused us to question our own relevance. I know that you had a violent encounter with police. I was wondering if that encounter um, has changed your outlook on nonviolence. Well, at the time, it, it just meant that uh, even those of us who were practicing nonviolence were not safe. Uh, you know, what happened was that one of the things that we thought about as we were outside the office is whether we could be helpful in some way. Um, we didn't feel like going and looting and burning buildings, but we wanted to, to show that we were supportive. And uh, we got a call that evening um, that a, someone had been hurt. Uh, it wasn't clear how they'd been hurt, but they had been in an alley and they needed an ambulance. No ambulance was going to come into that area uh, during, um, during that period. So we agreed to go and look for the person. Um, we were unsuccessful in, in finding maybe the person had been moved by the time we got there. And but as we were returning, the police had begun a sweep of the area. And uh, as we were nearing the office, we saw that they were blocking the street in front of us. And so uh, you know, we looked at them and, and they looked at us and we weren't sure exactly what to do. And, and I guess in our naivete, we, um, we said something like, well, we're just trying to get to our office and uh, you know, it's being <laughs> on the other side. And uh, I, I think that um, we started walking toward them and uh, they just uh, responded by get out of here and started hitting us with their batons and you know we then we had a choice of of uh, do we run or do we stand there and take it and uh, and our our response was we better get out of here and uh, so fortunately we got away with just um, in, in my case just a sore head um, uh, from a couple of blows from a, one of the policemen. But I realized later that uh, I could have easily been shot in the back and um, no one would have investigated it. It would have been what they called a justifiable homicide. And, uh, and that would have been the end. But, uh, but I was fortunate to get back to the office. Uh, so there were incidents like that that kind of stick in my mind. But uh, you know, more generally during that time, I began to understand the anger and the frustration um, that had caused uh, what we call the rebellion. And, uh, and I think that it caused us to, to really do some soul searching about our own purpose in the movement. This riot or rebellion also had a great impact on King, who has been one of the leading advocates of nonviolence, um, he decided to come to us despite being warned not to. What was his reception after his arrival? I think it was mostly good. Um, there were some people who booed him and uh, were, didn't ask why he was there. Um, but I think that most people felt, and I felt that it was good that he came, you know, that, uh, 
that he had to uh, speak up for nonviolence. Um, I didn't attend uh, the meeting because it was um, organized by community leaders who only wanted local residents there. Yeah, so you felt that you were not invited to, to the meeting just because you were not necessarily from Watts. Yeah, and I heard that, um, that he did make a plea for nonviolence. Um, and that, um, and I think that this, you know, it didn't cause King to question nonviolence, but it did cause him to consider more seriously the need for him to show that nonviolence could work in the urban north. In the meeting with the community and community leaders, he did diagnose what was happening. And, and according to him, this, this outbreak of violence was environmental and not necessarily racial. The criminal responses which led to the tragic outbreaks of violence in Los Angeles are environmental and not racial. The economic deprivation, social isolation, inadequate housing, and general despair of thousands of Negroes teeming in northern and western ghettos are the ready seeds which give birth to tragic expressions of violence. Well, I think he had for the several years before that, had begun to sense that the problem of racial discrimination was something that was national, um, that black people in the South had a particular kind of oppression from the Jim Crow system of segregation, that blacks in the North were not that much better off. And he had begun to see that in the Birmingham movement because um, the Birmingham campaign exposed not simply segregation as an issue, but widespread poverty in the black community. And he understood that you had to begin to address all of these related issues. Jobs was one of the goals of the movement, um, to gain jobs for black people in downtown businesses. That was one of the motivations. So, uh, so he understood that these issues were connected that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were important, but that they did not solve the entire problem. And, uh, and I think he, his analysis of what was happening in Los Angeles was, was bas basically accurate. He understood that more needed to be done, uh, but he felt that it could still be done within the context of nonviolence. He certainly saw the crisis in LA also as a crisis of the nonviolent movement. How do you think that these events in Watts influence his future work and activism? Well, I think it led directly to the Chicago campaign. A year after Watts, he's in Chicago leading marches against segregated housing, leading marches to gain employment opportunities. Uh, he brings his family, Coretta and, and the kids come. You know, we'll talk about that in a, in a future episode. But I think that what he senses is that the movement has to become nationalized and deal with problems that face black communities, whether they're in the South or the North. And what about the more militant fraction of the civil rights movement? People like Stockley Carmichael. What was their reaction to the events in Watts? Well, you have to remember that at, at this time, 1965, Stokely Carmichael 
is working in Lowndes County, Alabama. And he is um, trying to mobilize black people to gain political power. Uh, the problem in Lowndes County, which was the a county between Selma and Montgomery, was, was basically that it was a majority black county, but black people had very little political power. No black person had ever been elected to office in Lowndes County. So that was where he was doing his organizing work. And it's during the course of that, he comes to a realization that I think does affect what happens in Los Angeles and other communities. And that is, they are searching for a new kind of militancy. And the symbol for this becomes the Black Panther. And uh, even though the Lowndes County Freedom Organization was the official name of the new political party there, uh, it was better known as the Black Panther Party. And that Black Panther symbol is something that begins to impact um, you know, our own movement in Los Angeles. Uh, there were um, people who formed the Los Angeles chapter, well, actually the Los Angeles Black Panther Party. But even more, the slogan that comes out of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, Black Power for Black People, becomes a rallying cry for those who are calling for greater uh, militancy. And especially when Willie Ricks, one of the organizers in Lowndes County, shortens that phrase, Black Power for Black People, into Black Power. We want Black Power. And that becomes nationally um, known during the summer of 1966 when Stokely Carmichael and Willie Ricks um, began using We Want Black Power as there's as the slogan of a voting rights march and uh, becomes uh, really something that influences um, the future development of black activism uh, throughout the country uh, so the black panther party and and by the way uh stokely carmichael because of the success of the Lowndes county freedom organization uh, runs for election as chair of SNCC. Uh, during the spring of 1966, and succeeds in, in defeating John Lewis, who had been chair of SNCC since 1963. And uh, that victory and the fact that Stokely Carmichael becomes the new chair of this organization that had inspired the Nonviolent Action Committee so that Stokely Carmichael really represented this new kind of militancy. And I, I re remember um, seeing him, you know, I'd met him first uh, before the March on Washington. And the next time I saw him was uh, during, a, I believe it was the summer of 1966 when he comes to uh, a park, Will Rogers Park in Watts and gives a black power speech uh, that attracts a large crowd. And, it signals the increasing sense that many people in the black community are looking to uh, Stokely Carmichael and the black power idea as um, symbolizing the new direction in the black freedom struggle. And, uh, and I think for us in NVAC, uh, well, first of all, NVAC itself, uh, ceased to exist after that because uh, it was an interracial organization. It had nonviolence in its name. 
And I think many of the founders um, began to see it as increasingly irrelevant in terms of, of the future development of, of black politics in South Central Los Angeles and elsewhere. Uh, so, so I think for King and for NVAC and for me, it was a turning point um, and for all of us because it made us question the relevance of what we had been doing. It, you know, what did militancy in the mid-1960s and late 1960s look like? And who was going to lead that militancy? You know, these were the questions uh, that came out of um, the Watts Rebellion. You listen to Mira Foster and Claiborne Carson and The World House. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to find out more, visit the Liberation Curriculum on our website at kinginstitute.stanford.edu.